Thank you for listening to this sermon from Renaissance Church located in Montreal, Quebec. For more information about Renaissance Church, please visit our website, renaissancemtl.com. If you would like to know more about how you can partner up to see the gospel advance in Montreal, please send us an email at renaissance.mtl at gmail.com. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this time to come together and to celebrate the resurrection. Father, I pray that you would be at work in each of our hearts, that you would just bring us joy this morning as we hear your word, as we, again, just celebrate uh, the, the resurrection of Jesus. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, good morning. Okay, he is risen. Okay, not bad. Okay, good. <laughs> At least that I had to do it. So, there it is. Uh, my name is David, uh, an elder here at Renaissance. I'm so thankful every, that everyone's here today. Uh, if you're new with us again, we have a connect table back there, and there are Bibles on that table uh, that you can use. Uh, take it, it's yours. I'd love for you to have it. Today, we gather to celebrate the resurrection of Jesus, our Lord and Savior. We celebrate that he's defeated death, he is victorious, and because of his resurrection, the grave is not the end. I'm, again, just so glad you're here with us today, and unfortunately, Graham kind of took my opening joke about the dark and coming out the dark, that's okay, but because there are power outages this week, uh, our Good Friday gathering uh, had to be canceled, and had we met, we would have spent time, as I hope uh, we were able to do remembering Jesus' death on the cross, his crucifixion. The resurrection, of course, only makes sense if there was a death before it. So today we'll primarily be in the book of John, John chapter 20. Uh, but right now I want to briefly walk through the f- chapters 18 and 19, what we sort of would have gone through on Friday. And just for a warning, there will be a few uh, large sections of scripture I'm going to read this morning. Uh, But by simply even just reading the headings of chapters 18 and 19, you can sort of get the gist of the story. And as we go through it briefly, I'm going to fill in some details using the accounts given in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Each author has, of course, different emphases, but they tell the same consistent story. So if you look back at the beginning of chapter 18, you'll see Jesus is betrayed. He's arrested. He's brought before the high priest. We see, sprinkled throughout this, the story of Peter, who had said, Lord, I will never, ever deny you. Jesus says, well, you're actually going to do it three times before the rooster crows, and sure enough, he does. Um, Then Jesus is interrogated by the high priest. Matthew and Luke tell us that the high priest, the scribes, the elders, they couldn't seem to pin anything on Jesus. They kept trying and trying, and nothing was working. Finally, they asked him if he was the son of God, and when he uh, didn't deny that, they uh, charged him with blasphemy. Then he was brought over to the regional governor, Pontius Pilate. After being questioned by Pilate, he says in chapter 18, verse 38, he says, I find no guilt in him. He's questioned Jesus, and he finds no guilt in Jesus. But it's his custom to release one prisoner to the people. He perceives that they are probably jealous of Jesus, so he gives them the option, Jesus or Barabbas. Barabbas was a a robber. He was a thief. And the crowds chose the condemned thief, Barabbas. After this, Jesus is beaten He's flogged, he's whipped, and finally, 
Pilate reiterates that he finds no guilt, and it says he sought to release Jesus. So again, since we didn't come together Friday night, I want to spend just a moment reading chapter 19, verses 17 through 30. So we're going to start right where likely there's a heading that says the crucifixion. This is John 19, around verse 17. It says, So they took Jesus, and he went out, bearing his own cross to the place called the place of the skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. There they crucified him, and with him two others, one on either side, and Jesus between them. Pilate also wrote an inscription and put it on the cross. It read, Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the Jews. Many of the Jews read this inscription, for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city, and it was written in Aramaic, in Latin, and in Greek. So the chief priests of the Jews said to Pilate, Do not write the king of the Jews, but rather, this man said, I am king of the Jews. And Pilate answered, What I have written, I have written. When the soldiers had crucified Jesus, they took his garments and divided them into four parts, one for each soldier, also his tunic, but the tunic was seamless, woven in one piece from top to bottom. So they said to one another, Let's not tear it, but cast lots for to see whose, for it to see whose it shall be. This was, was to fulfill with the, the scripture which says, they divided my garments among them, and for my lots they ca- my clothing they cast to lots. That's from Psalm 22. So the soldiers did these things, but standing by the cross of Jesus were, the, where his, were his mother and his mother's sister, Mary the wife of Clopas and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved, that's John, standing nearby, he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. Then he said to the disciple, Behold your mother. And from that hour the disciple took her to his own home. After this, Jesus, knowing all that all was now finished, said to fulfill the scripture, I thirst. A jar full of sour wine there, sorry, a jar full of sour wine stood there. So they put a sponge full of sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, It is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. So Jesus was crucified. He was dead. The text goes on to speak of his burial. It says in chapter 19 that his tomb had been unused uh, by anyone in which no one had been laid. Seems like an odd thing to mention, but sort of looking ahead, if it had been used, then a body disappearing from it would not have been such a scandal. It could have easily been explained. Others would have, other bodies would have been there. There would have been many reasons for a body to have possibly gotten lost in the shuffle, but it was a tomb unused by anyone else. So the Lord is crucified, killed, he's buried. The Jewish leaders and the angry mob wanted him to die, and ultimately Christ demonstrated humility, meekness, and submission to the Father's will, even to the point of crucifixion. Now if that were the end of the story, it would be tragic. If that were the end, Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians that We are, of all people, most to be pitied. If that's the end, Christ would be a great example to us of a moral teacher, a good man, and certainly he is a good example for us and lived a, a great moral life. But since that's not the end, he is more than just an example. He is a risen Savior. We can trust that he has the ability to save us from sin and death because he rose from the grave and he defeated death. So today as we celebrate Christ's resurrection, remember this. The reality that Jesus Christ rose from the grave is not something that can be shrugged off. It's not something that we can hear about and then go on living as if it's no big deal. As John's going to make clear, it requires a response. If you accept the resurrection, it's going to change your life. 
And frankly, if you deny the resurrection, that too will change your life, but not in a good way. So as we walk through this today, I encourage you to listen to this, not as a story you maybe have heard many, many times, not as an inspiring tale, but as the Savior of the world who came to save you from sin. This gospel message requires a response. So let's jump into John chapter 20. It begins like this. It says, Now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early, while it was still dark, and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. So she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, and said to them, They have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. So Mary Magdalene goes to the tomb and notices that the stone has been rolled away. In Luke, we're told she's bringing spices to treat the body. And if you were reading through the Gospel of John, you might think back to John chapter 11, when Jesus raises Lazarus, right? They make a big deal out of how bad he smelled um, when, he, when he rose from the grave, right? In 1139, Jesus talks about how there's going to be a big odor because he's been in the grave four days. So Mary's going to treat the body with spices. And notice that her first reaction is not, he's risen, the scriptures are fulfilled. She thinks someone has taken the body. Could have been thieves, could have been the authorities, uh, could have been someone who just didn't want the body to be treated. So we see that Mary went to the tomb to take care of the body, but the body was gone. And she thinks someone had taken it. Now later in the chapter, Mary is going to see Jesus in his resurrected body, and she's going to believe. At this point, all she knows is that the body is gone. And she is the first witness to this reality. The first person to spread the news that the tomb is empty. Now, it's a lot of times popular, especially on Easter, around Easter. Uh, you pro probably start seeing, maybe on social media or just, you know, wherever, you, you know, these uh, proofs of the resurrection, right? People giving you philosophical or historical or scientific arguments of why the resurrection had to happen. And I think those are good and helpful. Ultimately, I find that they're often much more helpful as a uh, way to strengthen those who already believe, right? Because they mostly aim at the head, right, and helping us better understand this. Ultimately, belief is, from, is in the heart. And so if you are, your heart is already not wanting to believe, you know, we can try to convince, convince, convince. But ultimately, there is a heart change that's needed. But I do want to pause for a moment here and demonstrate how even in these first two verses, we see something that demonstrates the authenticity of Christ's resurrection. You see, if you're in first century uh, Judea, and you want your story to be believed, if you're making up a story and you really want someone to believe it, you're not going to have the first witness to this be a woman. The reality was then, in law courts, um, uh, in, in, in uh, serious proceedings, a woman's word was not uh, a valid witness. A woman could not be uh, brought up as a witness in a case. So if you're like making up a story and you really want people to believe it, it would be nice to maybe just keep this part out just wait and talk about Peter or John or, or, or someone else finding the empty tomb. The fact that this story is built around a woman first going to the tomb and then reporting it would have made it potentially suspect. If John is fabricating the story to get people to join his movement, he's off to a bad start. So why would he include this? Well, because it's true. See, John isn't so concerned with what people might think no, he's giving a, an account of things that actually happened. His primary concern is not to sort of smooth over rough edges, but to tell the truth of the events that we might believe. 
Further to this point, in speaking of the resurrection, the disciples often are open about points that would kind of paint themselves in a bad light. As we'll see in a minute, they're, they're constantly not understanding the scriptures, right? I wouldn't really want that in my own story if I'm writing my own story. Like, yeah, I still didn't get it. Yeah, I still didn't really understand. Yeah, it took me a while, right? They openly speak of this event as being supernatural, right? Which uh, throughout human history has always, you know, to a certain degree been unbelievable to some. And the message definitely wasn't popular, right? Some people like to think, well, the disciples made up this story because, I mean, hey, look at the world, right? The Bible's a bestseller. You know, they probably got really rich and famous. Well, actually, the people who actually wrote these stories, John, he was persecuted and he lived out his life in exile. The rest of the New Testament authors, almost every single one of them was martyred and killed for this. So why would these poor, poor fishermen tell a story that first had a woman as the first witness, which in their day would have been unthinkable, painted themselves in a bad light as if they couldn't seem to understand the scriptures, and thirdly, it resulted in their own persecution and martyrdom in many cases, if they had not been changed by it. If they did not know it to be true, if they did not believe that it could change you and me, why would they write these things down? Why would they record them? They did so because the story is true and it is life-changing. Verse 3 goes on. So Peter went out with the other disciple and they were going toward the tomb. Both of them were running together, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. I always just find that so funny that John like recorded. Peter and I were running to the tomb and I outran him. Sorry, side note, it's just it's funny. And stooping to look in, he saw the linen cloths lying there, but he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came following him and went into the tomb. He saw the linen clothes lying there and the face cloth, which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen cloths, but folded up in a place by itself. Then the other disciple who had reached the tomb first also went in, and he saw and believed. So again, they both go. John records that he was faster than Peter. Of course, he also records that he didn't have the courage to go in, and Peter did. So, again, maybe not painting himself in the best light. So they get to the tomb, and what do they see? Well, it tells us they see linen cloths lying there, and a face cloth, not lying with the linen cloths, but folded up by itself. Now, remember the report they had received from Mary. They were going to investigate, had someone taken the body? But this doesn't sound like someone trying to rob a grave, take a body, you know, uh, I mean, I'm no thief, but I still don't always fold my linens nicely. If someone's stealing a body, why would they take this time to unwrap it? Why would they, you know, take these, uh, unravel the body, fold the face cloth? And again, it's instructive to think back to John 11, right? The story of Lazarus. After Jesus raises Lazarus, verse 11:44 says, The man who had died, Lazarus, came out, his hands and feet bound with linen strips and his face wrapped in cloth. Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. So when Lazarus comes out, there is linen around his body, around his face. And when he's raised from the dead, they remain on him. He couldn't have taken these things off right by himself. He needed help to be unbound. So a dead person can't unbind himself. And someone stealing the body wouldn't unravel it, wouldn't take the time to do this and leave uh, just the claws lying there. Yet when Peter and John go into the tomb, that's what they see. It doesn't seem to be the work of thieves, nor could the dead body have done it to itself. And it's why John saw and believed. Now the rest of John 20 is going to tell stories of people seeing Jesus' resurrected body. They see him in a physical body there with them. 
We see him appear to Mary, the disciples, to Thomas. And those stories are absolutely instructive and helpful. They're inspired by God. But in each story, someone sees him literally there in front of him. And they believe. But in verse 8, John, it says he saw and believed. Well, he didn't actually see Jesus, right? What did he see? No, more like us today, he didn't see the physical person of Jesus standing in front of him. Rather, he saw evidence of Christ's resurrection. He realized that the only plausible explanation for what he saw was that Jesus must have truly been the Savior. Today, of course, Jesus doesn't walk around among us in a physical body, but that's no excuse for unbelief. Rather, like John, we see, uh, we look around and we see evidence of his resurrection in one another, in the church, in the work of the Spirit that he sent. Don't use the lack of a physical body as an excuse for unbelief. And again, as we see later in this chapter there, Jesus did rise with a physical glorified body. Verse 9 continues, For as yet they did not understand the scripture that he must rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to their homes. I think it's helpful to note, again, John in verse 8, he believes. As yet, though, they still didn't understand the scriptures. When one is confronted with the empty tomb, that doesn't immediately mean you can answer every Bible question, have perfect Bible knowledge, and that's okay. The reality of the empty tomb changes your life. And in time, you might grow to understand the scriptures and what they mean. But we can see here that the resurrection is a call to belief. Even if as yet, you might not understand all the scriptures. John saw and believed, even though he didn't yet understand everything. Even if you don't understand everything that the scriptures have to say today, you can believe. Because the resurrection changes everything. It is the question on which you have to answer. Is this true? And with that said, it is a recurring theme in the New Testament that the death and resurrection of Christ is a fulfillment of the scriptures. I read through chapter 19 and Jesus' death, and there are multiple places where it said this has happened to fulfill the scriptures. It didn't just come out of thin air in the first century. These things had been prophesied in the Old Testament. John notes that the Old Testament says the Messiah would die for the people and rise again. There are many Old Testament places for this, Psalm 16 and 22. I certainly recommend, maybe sometime today, go back and read Psalm 22. It isn't that long, and it's very difficult to read Psalm 22, written hundreds and hundreds of years before the death of Christ, and not see, like, this is clearly talking about the death of Christ. Isaiah 53 as well, which we'll read some of in a moment. Daniel 12, 2 and 3 have a clear picture that there will be a resurrection at the end, right? This is what, again, keep going back a little bit to the story of Lazarus, which is in many ways a precursor to this. Uh, Mary and Martha talk about the resurrection that's going to happen at the end of, the, of time, though they don't understand Jesus' resurrection. Jonah is often referenced in the New Testament. Jesus references Jonah himself. He says, no sign is going to be given to you, as he's talking to people. He's no sign except the sign of Jonah. What did Jonah do? Three days in the whale, and then, or in the fish, and then he, was, he came back out. Hosea 6, chapter, one, uh, chapter 6, verses 1 and 2 say this, and it's a prophecy both about Israel and their exile, but I think as we read, we see it's also foreshadowing of Christ. The author says, Come, let us return to the Lord, for he has torn us, that he may heal us. He has struck us down, and he will bind us up. After two days he will revive us, and on the third day he will raise us up, that we might live before him. 
right? An immediate context of, okay, Israel's going to go into exile and the Lord will raise them up. But what's all this talk about? He's going to do it on the third day. He's going to raise them up on the third day. Well, again, the scriptures point to Christ. And the scriptures are consistent. They are true when they find their fulfillment in the resurrection of Jesus. I think the end of the book of Luke is helpful here after the resurrection, right? After the, res- after the resurrection in Luke chapter 24, I'm going to start in verse 13. Jesus, Jesus appears to two men on the road to a town called Emmaus. I'm going to start reading in verse 13. Some of the verses will be on the screen. It says, That very day two of them, two people in Jerusalem, were going to a village named Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. And they were talking with each other about these things that had happened. While they were talking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near and went with them. But their eyes were kept from recognizing him. And Jesus said to them, What is this conversation that you are holding with each other as you walk? And they stood still, looking sad. Then one of them, named Cleopas, answered him, Are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there in these days? And Jesus said, What things? And they said to him, Concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a prophet, mighty indeed in word before God and all the people, and how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and besides all this, it is now the third day since these things have happened. Moreover, some women of our company amazed us. They were at the tomb early this morning, and when they did not find his body, they came back saying they had seen a vision of angels who said he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but him they did not see. So they tell Jesus, because they don't know it's Jesus, they say, yeah, he was crucified, he died. We thought he was going to be the Savior. We thought he was going to redeem us. But I guess he's dead. And now we have this confusing tale from, from these people who say his body's gone. And Jesus says, O foolish ones and slow of heart to believe all the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, which is a shorthand way of basically saying the Old Testament, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. So we see this story the men give is very uh, similar to John's account about the women go to the tomb first and then others go and see. But Jesus says, no, you shouldn't be surprised that this one you thought was going to be the Redeemer died, that he was crucified. He was crucified for the sins of his people. And now he's risen again. Later in Luke, he meets with the disciples and Jesus says this. He says, then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures and said to them, thus it is written, that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead, and that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations, beginning in Jerusalem. Thus, thinking back to John 20, verses 9 and 10, tells us they still didn't understand the scriptures. John believed, but in time, he would begin to understand its importance. So what is the importance of all this? Well, John also lays that out clearly. If you were to read through the rest of John chapter 20, again, there are numerous stories of people seeing the risen Christ. They see that he defeated death. They put their faith in him. They praise him. But look with me for a moment at John chapter 20, verses 30 and 31. John says this, Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. So again, he's like, I didn't have space to write everything he did. But he did other things. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, 
and that by believing you may have life in his name. These things are not written for fun. They weren't written to tell a cool story. They weren't written for our entertainment. John wrote them so that you would believe and that by believing you might find life. If you read this today and it doesn't change you, that's, that's a problem. If you're here with us reading these words, hearing the death and resurrection of Jesus proclaimed, I encourage you, let the word of God change you. Believe that you may have life in his name. Now you might be thinking, okay, cool, Jesus, great guy and everything, but why is the resurrection so vital? Can't I appreciate Jesus' good moral teachings, the fact that he lived a really good life, even the fact that he was wrongfully killed, right? Can't I appreciate all that but not worry about this, frankly, the, the supernatural stuff, right? The stuff, the stuff that gets a little uh, difficult to believe. Well, no. <laughs> In 1 Corinthians, Paul lays out why the resurrection of Jesus is really the issue on which Christianity stands or falls. Did Jesus rise from the dead? That's the question we all have to answer. So I want to take just a couple minutes here and look at 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Verses 3 and 4 of that chapter say, Paul says, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins, there's that in accordance with the scriptures again, that he was buried, that he was raised, and on the third day, uh, and he raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. So again, there's that continuous refrain that things happened according to the scriptures. In the same way the birth of Jesus had been prophesied hundreds of years in advance, so had his death and resurrection. As many have said before, it's a bit cliche, but it points out that in the Old Testament, promises are made. In the New Testament, promises are kept. So I want to read for a moment then 1 Corinthians 15, 12 to 20. And let these verses move you. Recognize the logical implications of them. It says, now if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection from the dead? But if there is no resurrection from the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise, if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Then those, <clears throat> then those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. We see here the importance of the resurrection. If Christ has not been raised, we're pitiful. This, my friends, is the point that we, and I know I, and uh, Graham, and, and Dylan, and anyone else who's uh, preached have tried to make recently, especially in, I think of like the Abraham series, Galatians, James, right? The idea that faith, belief, results in action. See, if you don't actually believe in the resurrection, then sooner or later this is all kind of going to seem to be futile. It's going to be in vain, right? It's not really going to be worth your time. Making decisions for your life, that are based around the gospel, around church, around evangelism, discipleship, church membership, whatever it may be, right? That sounds kind of crazy if the Savior's dead. If the grave is the end, why on earth would I make decisions in light of eternity? 
If Christ is dead, we gather each week to worship someone who died 2,000 years ago. And if we think about that, it would be kind of pitiful. We get that intuitively. Like, if a group of people were walking around Montreal saying they gather each week to have, like, worship services to Julius Caesar, we'd probably laugh. we think, like, he's dead. Why on earth are you worshiping someone who's, who died, has been dead thousands of years? It makes no sense. Even if he did significant things during his lifetime, he's dead. If people started moving their families to foreign lands to proclaim Caesar's greatness, if they sold their possessions and gave to the poor in the name of Caesar, if they sacrificially gave of their time, resources, gifts in order to further the kingdom of Caesar, it probably wouldn't be funny anymore. We'd think there's a serious problem here, right? This is, we'd probably start to pity them, right? Like, why are they wasting their time on something and on someone who is dead? So today, let's ask, do we believe Jesus Christ rose from the grave? And if you're visiting, well, here at Renaissance, we, we do. We believe Jesus Christ was crucified on a Roman cross. He died. He was actually 100% dead. He was buried. He was laid in a tomb. And three days later, he rose from the grave. We do not worship someone who is dead. We worship Jesus Christ who is alive. In his life he, on earth, he lived perfectly. He lived a holy life, and he did not deserve death. He was killed, and the punishment that we deserve was placed upon him. He has paid the penalty, and after paying that penalty, he rose and he defeated death, that we might rise again. That those in Christ will rise again. In those verses I just read, Paul speaks of the dead in Christ, and I know some in our church recently have experienced loss. I think for myself over the past... Roughly the past year, I've lost a couple of grandparents, an aunt with whom I was close, and their funerals were sad. But I can have genuine hope because those who have died in Christ have not perished, but have raised, been raised with him. And as we close, I want to think back for a moment to the summary I gave at the beginning, Christ's death, those chapters 18 and 19. And remember that guy, Barabbas, the one who was condemned, the robber, the one who deserved to be punished, the one who had actually done wrong, the one who was released instead of Jesus? Well, that, friends, is a picture of us. All of us left to ourselves, we are condemned. We deserve to be separated from God. But like Barabbas, Christ has taken our place. Christ, who was not condemned, who did not deserve the punishment, received it. And this happened in accordance with the scriptures. The Old Testament prophesied about this. Let me quickly read Isaiah 53, verses 3 to 12. This is an Old Testament prophecy. It really goes back to the, to the end of Isaiah 52, but we're going to pick it up in Isaiah 53, 3. Hear these words with me. It says, He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and as one from whom men hide their faces. He was despised and we esteemed him not, Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. 
He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that is before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away, and as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people? And they made his grave with the wicked and with the rich man in his death. In his death, Although he had done no violence and there was no de- deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief when his soul, when his soul makes an offering for guilt. He shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes, trans- makes intercession for transgressors. I know it was a bit long, but it reminds us that Christ did die, and in dying he was our substitute. He felt the wrath of God that we deserved. He was afflicted. He was smitten by God. He was crushed for our iniquities. And, by, and we are healed because of his wounds. But think for a second. It says he intercedes for transgressors. transgressors. How could he do that if he were dead? Having been crucified and having paid the debt for sin, he rose from the grave. He defeated death. He rose so that in him we too will rise. We too might have eternal life in him. This life on earth is not the end. So today I encourage you to place your faith in Jesus Christ. What does that mean? It means first, recognize that you're a sinner. Apart from Jesus Christ, you stand condemned. So look to him. Trust and believe that he took your punishment, that he paid the debt for your sin that you couldn't pay, and he rose from the grave. That all those who believe in him might too be raised to new life. The hope he offers is not for this life only. Our Savior is not dead. He is alive. Today we celebrate that he is risen. He is risen indeed. Thank you for listening to the sermon from Renaissance Church. If you have any questions about the sermon or would like to know more, please feel free to contact us by email at renaissance.mtl@gmail.com or reach out to us on social media. It's our passion to love Jesus, love each other, and love our world.